On the season finale of History Bites, we are going to talk about the most important food in the world. We already covered the sordid paths of salt and sugar, we got deep on the roots of culinary appropriation, and we dissected how slavery changed everything we eat. But there is one food that is responsible for feeding the entire planet, and that food is rice. Now before I lose you because you think rice is boring or bland, you need to know a few things. The rice we eat today was first farmed over 10,000 years ago. There are more than 40,000 strains of the stuff, and it holds the mantle as the original genetically modified organism. Monsanto my ass. Rice is so important that it's responsible for feeding more than 3.5 billion people every day, which accounts for 20% of their daily calories a day. And over 700 million tons of it is produced every year. Every year. And also I like repeating words. Repeating words. One ton is 2,000 pounds of rice, by the way. You do the math. Rice is also one of the world's worst polluters and water wasters. Rice production is estimated to be responsible for 12% of total methane global emissions. Cattle are responsible for 7%. Care to comment, vegan community? One kilo of rice needs 5,000 liters of water. You do the math. Basically, there's a shit ton of rice out there. It's both good and both bad. Ultimately, rice is the most important agricultural product on the planet, and there are some really interesting rice stories that have helped define how we eat around the globe that are also both good and bad. You do the math. Oh, there's no math, sorry. Let's get started in China. It's generally understood that rice was first domesticated in China about 10,000 years ago and slowly migrated to the rest of Asia and Europe. Today, China is the world's largest producer of rice and accounts for 30% of the world production and consumption. China, huh? That place is like really like big and stuff. Fun fact, the Great Wall of China is actually held together with rice. It's a mixture of rice, lime, mortar, and water, which creates an incredibly sticky rice product. That's right, big strong Genghis Khan was held at bay by itty-bitty rice. China is also home to one of the biggest rice disasters in human history. In 1958, Mao Zedong introduced the country to the Great Leap Forward. Mao was trying to change the entire economy of China from a farming country to an industrialized one, but with communist principles. Mao made private farming illegal and forced farmers to collectively join their farms together into people's communes, while at the same time forcing millions into industrial jobs to help further launch China's economy into the 20th century. Needless to say, it was a complete disaster. Even though the harvest in 1958 was good, the lack of labor on the farms meant a giant waste of cultivation. At the same time, Mao launched something called the Four Pests Campaign to eliminate rats, flies, mosquitoes, and sparrows. Mao thought sparrows ate too much grain, but what he didn't realize was that sparrows also ate a lot of bugs. And when the sparrows were brought to the verge of extinction, no one was around to eat the locusts, and a massive swarm destroyed all the crops. Then, farmers were under pressure by the government to prove they were having good results in the fields, so they started exaggerating their numbers, which led to government officials to take outsized portions of rice to the cities, which basically led to starvation of the farmers. And then 
then Mao wanted to prove to the outside world that China was doing great, so they exported a massive amount of rice out of the country. Add it all together, and the lack of rice in China led to estimates that range from 15 to 55 million deaths. Reports of cannibalism occurred in areas of extreme famine, but this all wasn't just from starvation. Estimates also account for nearly 2.5 million people beaten or tortured to death, along with another 3 million suicides. Isn't this a comedy podcast? All of this took place between 1958 and 1962. Holy shit, I'll do the math. That's four years. Oh, you want the math of how many people died per year? That's a little harder. Uh, you do the math. Let's leave China, cross over the Sea of Japan, and end up in... Japan. Japan and rice is very complicated. On one side, you have some of the best rice-based foods in the world. There are Domburi rice bowls, there's sushi, there are onigiri rice balls, and there is sake. On the other side is a history of war and colonization that caused countless deaths in countries throughout Asia, all in the name of rice. Let's start with the bad stuff. Japan is generally disliked by its neighbors, and a lot of this has to do with rice, although I'm sure their obsession with anime porn doesn't help. Japan colonized Taiwan from 1895 to 1945, Korea from 1910 to 1945, Vietnam from 1940 to 1945, and mainland China from 1931 to 1945. During its occupations, Japan had an insatiable appetite for rice and used its occupations to satiate the homeland's need for the grain. In 1918, Japan's access to cheap rice in Southeast Asia was mostly cut off by French and British colonial rule, which led to rice riots in Japan when prices skyrocketed. It also led to a boom in alt-rock bands in Japan named Rice Riots. Looking for a cheaper and easier alternative, Japan turned to Korea and took over the country for its rice fields. The newly acquired Korean rice fields were good enough to help feed the Japanese, but the Koreans had a massive shortage for themselves. Because of that, Japan started sending Koreans millet, corn, sorghum, and barley, which led to Korean food innovations like chopgokbap, a multi-grain rice dish, and helped change Korean food habits forever. Japan's rice dependence continued to grow exponentially in the first half of the 20th century, which led to excessive colonization. During World War II, though, Japan had such a rice shortage, they needed to import 2 million tons of the stuff. This led to a takeover of Indochina, where the Vietnamese took the brunt of Japanese rice addiction. Except things went sideways in Vietnam when the U.S. bombed the country's coal supplies, leading to power shortages. The Japanese were forced to burn the country's rice in order to fuel the power stations, which led to one of the worst famines in Vietnamese history that resulted in the deaths of between 1 and 2 million people. This is still somehow a comedy podcast. And at the same time, Japanese garrisons continued to raid parts of China strictly to take rice back to Japan and causing massive shortages across the mainland. Jesus, Japan, lay off the carbs for God's sake. Okay, that's the bad. Now let's focus on some good stuff. How about the story of the rice cooker? Up until World War II, the way Japanese women, and yes, only women, made rice was by using a kamado. This was a boxy, wood-burning oven that was tricky to use because adjusting the heat was really difficult. Women would have to watch the rice, meticulously changing the levels of heat by hand, and the process was long and laborious. They could spend hours of their day just making rice for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
After World War II, a bunch of companies got into the development process of making an electric rice cooker for the home. There were already a couple of industrial models on the market, but no one had cracked a home version to help out the women. Companies you've heard of, like Sony, Panasonic, Mitsubishi, and Toshiba, were all vying for what would become a massive retail market. By the 1950s, the technology still hadn't been cracked, and most of the companies gave up because they thought that a woman who was willing to give up the time and attention to make perfect rice made for an imperfect housewife. Obviously. As a result, the project gained little attention, but at Toshiba, the man in charge, Yoshitara Minami, turned to his wife Fumiko to help with the research since none of the men at the company knew how to make rice. Working together, Yoshitada and Fumiko figured out a system that got the rice cooker to turn off once it hit a certain temperature so the rice would steam properly and not under or overcook. Am I the only one imagining the scene from the movie Ghost where they're making pottery but instead it's an overworked Japanese couple kissing passionately as their hands squeeze the perfectly cooked rice? Sorry, I've been single for too long. Anyway, they cracked the code and Toshiba started producing more than 200,000 of the machines a month within the first year. And then there is everyone's favorite, sake. The history of sake is slightly accidental, but first we have to take a trip back 2,000 years to Japan when rice was first being cultivated there. Because everyone loves to get drunk, Japanese villagers figured out that they could chew rice grains along with some nuts and spit the mixture into a common pot. Enzymes in the human saliva along with natural yeast would be left to produce an alcohol of sorts. Kampai! I'm going to vomit. Eventually the process got less saliva-y, but only for the rich. The upper classes would drink very refined, clear sake, while poor people had to gulp down the murky stuff. Either way, it still got you drunk and was usually enjoyed with salted fish. Sake consumption reached its peak in Japan between the 17 and 1800s. Sake had become completely commercialized, rice prices were regulated, and sake was now everywhere at restaurants and bars. At the time, men in Japan drank 10 times the amount of sake they do today. Feudalism really does a number on your psyche. And finally, we come to America, where we both ruin everything and make everything better, which leads us to the sake bomb. The history of the sake bomb can roughly be traced to American soldiers occupying Japan after World War II. The American palate wasn't yet accustomed to the refined flavors of sake, but that is not enough to stop us from getting hammered. So instead of sipping the drink like the Japanese, they combined it with beer and pounded the mixture before they could decide whether it tasted good or not. In the words of Amanda Knox, let's take a trip to Italy. Italy's rice traditions include favorites like risotto, arancini, which are fried risotto balls, and suppli, which are also fried risotto balls. They like frying risotto in Italy, guys. But the invention of risotto was kind of a mistake. First, let's credit the Arabs for bringing rice to Sicily in the 10th century and somehow managing to grow it in this super dry climate. As for risotto, the dish first gained notoriety in 1574 in Milan. At the time, a young artist apprentice named Valerius was working on the stained glass for the Duomo di Milano. Apparently, locals made fun of Valerius and said the only reason he got great looking colors in his art was because of saffron. Apparently that was a deep burn in the 1500s. Valerius got upset about the whole thing, so he decided to get revenge at his master's wedding by spiking the rice with an excessive amount of saffron, hoping to ruin the festivities. 
I think we know why people made fun of Valerius. This wasn't some genius plan or anything. Oh, you think my panties are made of saffron? The most expensive food on the face of the planet? I'll show you and give you more delicious saffron than you ever seen. Anyway, apologies to my Italian listeners for that accent. Shocker, people loved the yellowed creamy rice and risotto was born. I imagine this pissed off Valerius, and out of spite, he probably ran over to his enemies and shaved white truffles onto their risotto. Rice in Italy has had its ups and downs, though, especially geopolitically. Did you know that rice nearly wiped out pasta in Italy? In the 1920s and 30s, there was something called a futurist movement led by a guy named Marinetti. The movement was basically pro-modernism in all forms. He claimed that pasta was, quote, passeist food that deluded people into thinking it was nutritious and made them heavy, brutish, skeptical, slow, and pessimistic. As such, it should be abolished and replaced with rice, end quote. Anyway, the movement gained a lot of steam when Marinetti teamed up with Mussolini. To make Italy less reliant on imported wheat, Mussolini's administration had started promoting rice, which was much easier to produce domestically, over pasta. In the late 1920s, he established the National Rice Board and even declared November 1st to be National Rice Day. The dictator never went so far as to ban pasta entirely, but that's only because world events intervened. What if that's the real reason World War II started, huh? Was it the pasta lobby? Alex Jones, get on this. Unfortunately for Marinetti, but fortunately for all of us, the movement lost steam in the 30s with the rise of Hitler. Hitler declared futurism to be in league with degenerate art. You see, he wasn't all that bad, guys. Ironically, Mussolini almost killed the entire rice industry in Italy when he drained a boatload of marshes to help wipe out malaria in the country. What's with this love-hate relationship Mussolini had with rice? Hey, Benito, show me on the doll where the rice touched you. Now, if you want to trace rice around the world, one dish has its tentacles in everything, and that is pilaf. First off, pilaf can mean many things to many people, but at its core, it is a dish made up of rice that is typically soaked in a broth, a meat of some kind, spices, and veggies. The first known reference to pilaf dates around 2000 BCE in India. Then the Persians ran with it around 500 BC when King Cyrus took over the known world, spreading it throughout their empire. When Alexander the Great took Greece back from the Persians, he kicked us out, but he kept our pilaf. I'm pretty sure that's what the movie 300 is about. The Greek version of pilaf, called pilafi, combined everything from chicken and mussels to yogurt along with rice. Then come the Arabs. They loved their rice and introduced the product all over northern Africa and along the Mediterranean in Europe. At this time, Arabs also introduced rice to Spain, but the word paella apparently isn't from pilaf. I'm reading that it refers to the type of pan the rice was cooked in, called a paella. I don't know, I'm calling bullshit. You heard it here first, paella comes from pilaf. Suck it, Wikipedia. For rice pilaf in France, you can thank Persian Jews. As a Persian Jew, I did not know this story going into this episode, and my rice-filled mind is blown. Anyway, Persian Jewish merchants were setting up shop in Provence in the 12th and 13th century, bringing up Persian goods from the Mediterranean, rugs, rice, saffron, that type of stuff. On Shabbat, just as my family does, they would cook Persian rice, called polo, and would add special spices like nutmeg, cumin, garlic, and saffron. The French loved it, started making it, and called it riz saffron. 
And guess what? They don't give Persian Jews credit for it every time they make it. If ever there was a time for me to scream cultural appropriation from the mountaintops, now is the time. But I'm an adult, and I love other cultures sharing cultures, and I'm just going to enjoy Riz Safran at a bistro and maybe cheekily tell the server how my grandma makes it slightly different and nobody will get hurt. What a concept. Eventually, the European age of exploration brought the recipe to the rest of the world. If you had to pinpoint a single dish to bring the world together, it would have to be rice pilaf. Okay, friends, that wraps up the first season of History Bites. So, what have we learned? Slavery played one of the most important roles in defining how we eat. Rice may seem super boring, but it's responsible for feeding and starving more than half of the world. And when you think you know what makes your food authentic, you are probably wrong. Guys, I really, really loved this show, and I hope you did too. Let me know. DM me at StandUpDan. Also wanted to give a special shout out to my partner in crime, Mr. Paul Feinstein. He helped immensely in putting together these episodes and the show would not exist without him. I love you, buddy. Also, my incredible editor, Jordan Aaron, who asked for two weeks lead time to do his work, but instead had to turn around episodes in half a day because Danny Boy had a lot of Shark Tank episodes to catch up on. Thanks always to Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate for constantly letting me take chances and regale listeners with goofy, fun, educational food content. Here's to season two, where we will wow you with some more weird-ass food history you can share with your friends to make you look sort of kind of smart. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.